All right, well, uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Divergent Opinions, episode five? Yeah, five. <laughs> what up, Newton? How's it going, Mike? Good. How are you doing, Colin? Hey, I'm, I'm doing okay. You got some news. I do. Good I have news. Some, I have some news. Uh, it's officially official-ish uh, that... In a couple weeks, I'll be uh, a full-time employee of Divergent Media. Employee number two. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, yeah, you gave notice today. Yeah. So uh, if anyone wants to buy a house in St. Paul, Minnesota, let me know. And uh, otherwise, I'll be working from the Midwest for a while, which is okay because here it's a den of sin out there in the Bay. Is that still true? Well, actually, I think we're the Denison now. You're just sort of playing second fiddle, but um, I guess that only comes with certain kinds of uh, sin. I'm not sure what you're talking about, but sure. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that's exciting. So now we're going to like have twice as many uh, people working on um, products and websites and stuff. Yeah, we should... Uh we got some things planned for you so that'll be uh hopefully people will start seeing the fruits of this soon yes hopefully and if not uh that would be unfortunate for everyone involved (laughs) (laughs) so yeah what are we talking about this week so this week um a couple little newsy type things and then we're going to get into some uh techie techie stuff about uh video compression and uh some of the things relating to intra frame compression um but first um i don't know one one little bit of news that i'm uh, super psyched about is hitting uh, mac rumors and actually sort of all the sites um this evening saying not surprisingly but excitingly that apple's uh nearing release of macbook air style versions of the 15 and 17 inch macbook pros um so thinner yeah thinner no optical maybe reduced ports um and uh mostly thinner <laughs> which would be really cool yeah do you do any of has anything said anything about whether or not they're gonna pull the gpu as well i doubt they would but uh i can't imagine they would yeah cuts down on battery yeah but i think they'll keep the gpu probably yeah i don't know it'll be really exciting though because you know especially with the new MacBook Airs, that 13 inches are a really tempting machine to be a full-time machine. And, uh, you'll, you know, I just, I like my 15 inch screen size. I know you like your 17 screen size, but to be, you know, half the weight, um, would just be fantastic and, and thinner. And, you know, I've already gotten rid of the optical on my laptop, but, uh, you know, I would happily do without the second hard drive, um, in return for less weight. Right. Do you think they'll still have spinning disks, or no, are we no, going all SSD? So. I think spinning disks are dead um, in in portables for Apple, which is great, um, both for speed and reliability. And then right. yeah, optical is dead. I think optical is dead across the line. Um, you know, save maybe the the Mac Pro. Um, we'll see if that keeps optical. I guess it probably will, but we'll see. I mean, uh, so this is the beginning of the end. In the same way they killed off, they were the first to kill off the floppy drive, and now. Right. And, you know, unlike with the floppy drive, they've been shipping an external DVD drive, an external DVD burner for years since the first MacBook Air. You know, unlike when the when they killed the floppy drive and then said, like, we're pretty sure someone will make a floppy drive eventually. You guys should just, you know, trust us. 
um, in this case, there actually is something for people to, you know, go out and pick up right now. Um, how much is that? It's 79 bucks. No. Okay. And if you, you know, if you don't want the Apple branded design, you can get one for 29 from Newegg that has all the same functionality. So it's not, it's not a huge cost. Yeah. And, you know, I certainly don't know the last time I had to, you know, use an optical, um, disc. Yeah, I don't ever use it. Rebecca, the girlfriend, she uh the girlfriend. She'll watch uh if you know for people who aren't you uh listening in. <laughs> so so for no one then. <laughs> yeah, maybe your parents. You know, I guess they know. Um but anyway, she uses it for Netflix on her laptop. Uh, but other than that, I don't yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's going it's going away. So what does that mean? I mean, that will have some implications, obviously, you know, Netflix being video. Yeah, although Netflix is trying to get rid of the discs, too, given their new pricing plans. Right, although they don't seem to be getting the streaming thing down too well yet. Not so much. Um, it's not on the licensing side. I mean, the technology is great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think... Um, you know, just like with the floppy disk, obviously there's going to be a tr- transitionary period. Um, you know, hopefully Netflix can up their licensing uh, with their new pricing model. Hopefully it'll allow them to negotiate some deals that, you know, get them into some studios and, and deals that they weren't able to get with their previous uh, margins. Um, and, um, you know, there's the Apple Apple TV and Apple and iTunes based movie rentals, which I actually use quite a bit um, for first run movies um, in high def. And those never work, tried it work fantastic. And they have, you know, pretty much every new release um, and uh, look great. I usually use them on an Apple TV, but they're they're also available through um, iTunes on the desktop. So, you know, I, th- I, I think that like with the floppy disk, it's a problem that will solve itself and Apple's just getting out of it head of the curve although you know I don't, I don't think that this is a shock to anyone um you know hopefully no. most people have their cd collections ripped at this point um and you know if you need to burn dvds you can you know get an external or uh move to the move to the net for distribution um Apple's obviously gotten out of the video DVD business more or less um, over the last few years as they've phased out uh, DVD Studio and, and effectively phased out iDVD, although it's it's still available, um, I think, on new Macs, but I don't think you can get it from the App Store. Um, so what is, I mean, at this point, a lot of people are using DVDs to or Blu-ray discs to deliver content, like when doing event videography you know weddings come to mind for sure for sure um and for sort of um producer demos and you know or to you know send a rough cut out send um, reels out yeah yeah that kind of thing you know and you know i think there's there's two paths for that one is um you know if you need that you can buy the burner but i think it's also that you know most of those tasks are increasingly moving online um you know youtube's added some new options now for doing um, semi-private videos, um, like videos that you don't, hi Molly, um, that you don't have to explicitly like share with people, but that aren't listed in the search results. So you can send out a URL and, um, know that they're going to be private. There's things like Vimeo and then there's like private video sites as well. So I think there are increasingly good options for getting videos out there, um, 
So true people are going to just thing. start putting their wedding videos online. Well, they probably do that now, right? I would guess. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know. And again, you know, if if the only people they piss off are uh, wedding videographers, uh, Apple's probably just as happy. Uh, you know. Sure. Um, so I, I think you know, from a user point, like they can't kill them fast enough. Um, you know, it's just a silly thing to have to haul around. It's a silly thing to be paying for every time you buy a new Mac. Um, Although, I mean, what is the, the, the cost of that has to be negligible at yeah, the units that Apple's doing. Yeah, probably, but it's something. I think the bigger thing, I think the thing, the thing that Apple really wants to do is lose the space and or, you know, transform all that into battery. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, again, if the, yeah, if they wanted to do a MacBook Pro in the current form factor where that space was all battery and, you know, I got 12 hours of battery life, that'd be okay with me too. And it only weighed four pounds more. Yeah, well, there's that trade-off. <laughs> did you see the, uh, I, are we are we good on this or do we? Yeah, yeah, one? no, I think that, I mean, you know, mostly I just wanted to say like I'm super excited. Um, I'll be, you know, first in line if they do a 15-inch, uh, you know, with the similar sort of specs, but sans optical and much thinner sure um did you see there was a uh um article going around this week that someone's invented a uh, method for making transparent batteries no yeah uh so basically at this point the only thing that can't be transparent is the um the electrodes okay um, the anode and the cathode in a battery. And so what they've done is they've made sort of a super fine mesh that they can embed in a gel and then wrap in clear plastic so you can have a mostly transparent battery. And you would use that for what? Well, basically, it's the last piece of uh, a device that couldn't be made transparent. So now you could conceivably do see-through iPhones. Okay. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> they thought this was, they were quite proud of themselves. Well, it's sort of like there was a story out this week about a guy who's developed a, uh, it's like a light bulb. It's, it's, he calls it Li-Fi. It's like radio communications via like subtle pulses in LED light bulbs that you screw into your light socket and then use them in the place of, um, you know, RF. And his whole thing was like, well, we're going to run out of, you know, RF spectrum. And this way we can have our devices communicate by like flashing lights. It was, it's a little strange. It's like, well, mm. we have, we have IR and, uh, we had IR. We, we didn't really use that. Um, didn't really get why this would be better, but, uh, same, same sort of idea. Interesting. Um, so yeah, um, the other story I think you mentioned you wanted to just talk about, at least touch on, was um, Hulu shopping itself around um, because there's been a lot of speculation about who might be in the market, whether Apple would buy. Yeah, I mean, there was a rumor going around that Apple was talking to Hulu, which sounds like um, probably happened, but there was nothing more than a talk. Yeah, which um, you would expect given the you know the players involved. If you're on the market, you... Right, I'm sure. You know, Apple's going to always sit down and talk with someone that large. Um, but it sounds like there wasn't really any interest. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, it sounds like they're probably going to go out of business. They don't seem to be making money and or even re-upping any of their deals at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's a little strange because, you know, my understanding, you know, Hulu was founded by, what, NBC and Fox. Um, I never really got the impression that they were intended to be profitable, per se. Um, it didn't sound like it in the beginning, but also they've had a hard time brokering deals with NBC and Fox. Yeah. Um, um, so I, mean, I don't... And and the, the, I think the speculation about who might buy them is pretty misplaced as well because people sort of say, well, Apple could buy them and then they'd be able to stream all this content, not getting that, you know, yeah, when you buy Hulu, you get those deals for whatever the period on the contract is, but that doesn't automatically mean, you know, the people who didn't want to do deals with Apple in the past are now suddenly going to do deals with Apple. Um, right. No, I mean, I would be surprised if their deals even transfer. Yeah, Would I mean, yeah, it's it's very much up in the air. That certainly happened with some of the big acquisitions of um, app developers and things. Is you know, small app developers can do deals, and then when they get sold, the deals don't transfer. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I certainly don't see Hulu having any technology that's particularly interesting to Apple or really anyone else. Um, what about the way to make you watch the ad every time without fast forwarding through? Yeah, it? but Apple's built that into uh, HTTP live streaming now. Oh, they did. Yeah. Oh, I guess they did. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the part of the new, yet again revised spec. We should uh, we should talk about that sometime. Yeah, we should. Uh, the world's most fluid and uh, pointless spec. Um. So yeah. Um. I mean, it sounds like they'll go out of business. Uh. I'm just wondering. I mean, is there? Who's gonna? How are we gonna get media soon? I guess. We're just going to count on people. So I guess here's my here's my thing. So we've got these new services like Hulu, which are you know already on the way out. But they you know they tend to be pretty license, pretty heavily license bound in the sense that you get something for a little while and it goes away. Um, we're seeing that with Netflix now. A lot of their videos that used they used to have are going away. You know, if we get rid of physical media and we go to the streaming model you know what are the chances i mean is it going to be are we going to get to the point where we can keep rebooting spider-man with impunity because you won't be able to see anything other than the last version or two of spider-man anywhere well it's, that's a fair point um i uh i don't know um Yeah, I mean, you you won't be able to cash it locally, right? I mean, Apple, I guess, is you know tries to give you the option of buying a license in perpetuity, but it's you know right. But aside, I mean, I think the people, the only people I hear about doing that are people getting kids movies, um, you know, where they want to be able to watch the movie a dozen times. I I guess you know there is a small small subset of the population that needs to own every release of Blade Runner. Um, but I mean, it's not even not even an issue like that. Like, say you have, you know, let's imagine going back in time. Let's imagine this technology, you know, transition having happened in the, you know, in 1980. Like, would would someone like George Lucas 
you know, who keeps updating his movies, would you would there be any chance of getting the original? Well, I Probably you know, not. I mean, you would think someone that draconian would be say like, no, no, everybody wants it with the new little bugs in it, right? But uh, you know, right now there's no official way to get the unmolested version of Star Wars. I think it would probably be the same deal as you know. Right, but we have it, you know, because you know we've all got it sitting on our. Yeah, but the real way people get it is by Optical. going and getting it from some fanboy site on BitTorrent. Like, if I wanted to right. watch it right now, I'm not gonna, you know, fire up my laserdisc player and pop in the uh, THX box set. Um, one because uh, Dad still got that, and. Um, too, because I'm, you know, it would be much easier to go on the Pirate Bay and grab, um, you know, an upscaled, really beautiful rip of that Laserdisc set um, with, you know, remastered audio and all the other things fanboys did. And I kind of think that's where people who are interested in that sort of thing will turn um, to the sort of illegal, but, you know, not so illegal that people really care market. Illegal, but not immoral. Right. So is that is that is that just going to have to become more mainstream? Because you do that. I mean, I don't, I don't have the patience for that. I don't think I've ever, you know, I think once or twice in my life I've expended the effort to get stolen movies. Well, I think people um, who who care about such things are are willing to go to that trouble. You know, just like right, trading, I mean, trading that, tapes of concerts or whatever. I guess. I don't know. It seems like it's going to get more difficult. I think it'll get more difficult to, you know, negotiate and catalog the content, but, you know, just as easier, easier to get the content. Um, but again, I'm, I, you know, I think it's one of those things that the change will benefit most people and, and negatively impact some people and, you know, it'll be a win for most. Sure. But and I don't think it's going to, you know, die anytime soon. Obviously, there's still CDs being put out. There'll still be DVDs put out for a long, long time to come now. Um, and I think, you know, DVD right. will remain the sort of canonical format for movies um, for probably at, at least the next five years, I would say. I wouldn't want to guess any further out than that. Um, and I certainly wouldn't put a long lifespan on Blu-ray. Yeah, I don't see Blu-ray. And at this point, I don't think... It's proven itself as a as a ubiquitous replacement for DVD. I think we're all going to kind of stop at DVD in the same way we stopped at CD instead of HD CD or whatever the new thing right. was called Super. before we gave up on media. Yeah, except for Dad. Um, Vinyl. Yeah, I mean, I've got a Blu-ray player and I've got a Blu-ray Netflix subscription, um, but it's just so much trouble to get discs and to find time to watch discs. And, and so I end up watching either Netflix streaming or I rent 720p from Apple with, uh, you know, surround sound. But, you know, I've got a got a 1080p TV and, and could be watching, you know, a better quality version of the movie. Um, I just it's too much work, too much trouble. Um, and I think that's sort of where most people are going to end up with with movies is that things like Netflix streaming or Apple rentals are are plenty good for quality certainly you know for most people the quality of an hd rental from apple exceeds the quality of their home theater setup sure um, and you know so do you um do any of the streaming options right now support 3d not that uh, there's a huge I, amount i mean uh google does 
I had, YouTube does. Yeah, I thought some of the there was at least one commercial service, maybe Voodoo or one of those that was at least experimenting with it, but not none of the mainstream services are doing 3D sure. yet. Um, but I'm sure that will that will come. And you know, there may you know Blu-ray may stick around for the foreseeable future for the sort of video file crowd. Um, you know, much like I think at least last time I looked, Super Audio CD is still around. Um, sure for the audiophile crowd that dog is barking a lot it's not my dog though so oh. nothing i can do about it um but you know again i i don't think too many people are going to be crying yeah it's definitely a niche so uh moving on sure moving on um i wanted on. to talk a little bit about uh get a little more technical talk about um intraframe video compression uh sort of where we've been where we are and where we're going um, because i think this is something that you know i know from our users of cliprap um, which deals pretty much exclusively with intraframe uh, source formats it's something that there's still a lot of confusion about even you know five or, or more years on from you know mainstream use of intraframe codecs um, it still trips people up and there's still best practices that aren't being uh, followed so sure do you think we should have a brief explanation of yeah give us the um do you want to do it or should yeah I? sure i can do it okay all right i'm putting on my uh my overcoat with patches in the elbows and uh you should get one of those what you think you, you get one just for working at the university it's like standard issue oh nice you don't um, have to return it they don't rip, do they like rip your patches off in disgrace when you leave? You can take the jacket. The patches are ours. Oh, so sad. Um, all right. So video. Uh, and the co-ed girls. They keep those too. Wait, I was supposed to be getting co-ed girls? No. Depends on how you graded papers. <laughs> I've obviously missed out. Um, video compression in its simplest form. Okay, so video in the digital space, um, you know, going back to the olden days, is a series of images played back at a certain rate. Um, so you can think of, you know, if you had a folder full of JPEGs um, and you showed a JPEG for a 24th of a second and then showed the next JPEG, um, essentially you would have made a uh, uh, film, a video, um, moving images. And effectively, that's what uh, DV compression was, um, was you know, very much JPEG compression, uh, discrete cosine transforms with like Huffman run length encoding um, one frame after another in a, in a stream with an audio as well with a PCM audio stream. Um, and so that's pretty much the, that was, you know, industry standard up through the 90s and into the first part of the 21st century. Um, right. And so that was something called intraframe coding. Right. Right. Um, Meaning the, all the compression, that JPEG compression is done on each individual frame. The compression is done internal to the frame, intraframe. And each frame is, yeah, each frame is a discrete object. You could slice that stream down to just a single frame. And in theory, uh, that would be a playable frame. In the or, same way, if you had a folder full of JPEG files, you could take half the files out, 
and create two different folders, one with the first hundred and one with the second hundred, and you have two folders full of JPEGs, and all the JPEGs would work. Right. And there are a lot of formats, um, you know, that are, are similar, either technically similar, or at least sort of spiritually similar to this, like, uh, well, DVC Pro, which is, you know, effectively identical, um, at least in terms of the video encoding, DVC Pro 50, which is um, the same thing with more color resolution, DVC Pro HD, uh, again, same thing in HD. Um, Motion JPEG. Uh, yeah, HD Cam, HD Cam SR. Well, actually, not HD Cam SR, uh, but HD Cam, um, DigiBeta. Um, you know, any of these formats are are effectively this this sort of thing. Although with things like HD Cam, you rarely see them that way because you're dealing with them on on linear media. Um, although it didn't Sony has an editor that lets you pull in like raw HD Cam and cut from that? Well, they had a they had an HD Cam deck that had a Ethernet spigot on the back. Yeah. The e-deck or something like that yeah what was it called yeah um anyways so you know evtr that's what it was those were that was great um and it was really easy to edit because as we've said you know you can make a cut at any point in that stream um you know insert something in the middle and play it back and you know for the computer it's just a bunch of frames a different bunch of frames and some more of that first set of frames and so it's very low CPU. Uh, all you're doing is decoding those frames. It's very low memory, um, very low disk. It's it's you know pretty ideal. Um, where it's not ideal is if you need to go from a frame of 720 by 480 standard def up to a frame of 1920 by 1080. Um, if you just do that with the same sort of technology and you want the same sort of you know visual quality, that means you're almost quadrupling. Um, actually, you're more than quadrupling the uh, amount of data you need and uh, that's not so great if you want to you know keep using mini dv tapes um, or any sort of you know reasonably cost tape transport or even storage media um, it just you know wouldn't have scaled if you you know made dv times four right i mean so this problem the first time we really ran into this problem was when we were all shooting on dv tape and they wanted to come out with some sort of HD version of that, that being HDV. And so the, the limitation was they didn't want to create a new tape format, and they didn't want to, you know, what they could have done was run the tape at five times the speed, which would have meant your 60-minute tape, which was, you know, the longest you can get in a mini-DV, would have been, you know... 12 minutes, which wouldn't have worked very well for the intended market, you know, the wedding event videography market. Well, and, and your typical mini DV tape probably would have exploded as well. You know? Right. Um, right. Cause with faster speed, you need higher tolerances. So you don't have data tracking issues and whatnot. Right. And so, and, and, and also, you know, 4x the data or 5x the data means 5x the storage um so your you know your your drives don't hold as much there's just a lot of issues that come from that and so um the hdv standard uh which sort of hit early 2000s if i recall correctly um 
uses something called interframe compression, which has been around for ages in the sort of delivery market. Um, so when you watch videos online going back, you know, years and years and years, um, you've been watching interframe compressed video. And what this does is if you think about um, your typical video, think about uh, an interview with someone where it's a person talking with a fairly static background. Uh, that person talking has very little motion, um, very little changes from frame to frame. You know, you might, if the person's really staying still, you might sort of have their, their mouth and jaw moving and maybe their eyes moving. And, you know, realistically, maybe their head's moving back a little bit and forth. But um, the background doesn't change. Most of their face doesn't change. Most of their body doesn't change. And so it's sort of silly to, in each frame, send all of that redundant data. And so what interframe compression tries to do is only send data once uh, unless it actually changes and then you sort of send an update and if data moves um, if, if parts of an image move rather than sending the moved bit of, of pixels you actually send information about where the pixels move to you send motion vectors um, that actually move parts of the image on the screen rather than sending whole chunks of, of image data. And so if you think about formats like MPEG-1, MPEG-2, um, MPEG-4, H.264, Windows Media, Real Media, um, all of Sorenson. these formats, you know, all these formats use different flavors of inter-frame uh, inter compression. Um, and you get pretty amazing storage savings, um, you know, especially in these sort of best cases, like, uh, you know, an interview, but even in, in pretty high motion scenes, you can get pretty remarkable savings because it's pretty rare that two, two adjacent frames are 100% uh, independent from each other, um, except for a hard cut or something like that. But rarely do you get a whole series of those. Right. And so do we, how do, what do, do, do we want to dive into how this is done? Um, sure. I-frame. Yeah. E-frame sort of. Yeah, sure. Um, you want So, so let's, let's just start from the beginning and invent an imaginary codec. All right. So in the past we were doing going to violate patents. Ah, uh, probably. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Any new idea violates patents. That's what patents are for. Um, so when we, in the, in the early days, we had a frame of video, and then the next frame of video was entirely separately encoded. So let's just, you know, let's come up with the simplest form of interframe possible, which is we start with a frame, and for frame number two, we'll take all of the, we'll take frame one and subtract frame two from it, which will give us uh, basically the difference between the two. So anything in the background that hasn't changed at all will be zero. And anything in the foreground that's moved a little bit will have some intermediate value. And then let's throw away everything that's zero and figure out some way to just send, you know, anything with, you know, a number over some threshold. So things that have changed enough will send that pixel. And so if enough stuff has not changed, we can figure out some way to send the position of the pixels that did change and their change value. Um, and, you know, that will save us one, all of the pixels that didn't change, and two, all of the, you know, let it, let's say the changes are, you know, the changes are smaller 
we can fit the changes into a smaller number than the than the original you know color coding right and in reality there's all kinds of great math to help with making that work <laughs> right and so that's the very simple idea now if we do that let's say we have an hour-long video we want to send out now if we were to do that frame one is we send out in its entirety frame two we send the differences frame three we send the differences from frame two so as long as we both kept frame two that was rebuilt we can build frame three keep doing that eventually those those rounding errors that we did where we said like oh any difference that's less than five we are not going to send those start adding up pretty quickly and so um we need some way to refresh the data either we need to send perfect differences every time or we need to periodically refresh the data and so the way that that's commonly solved is these difference frames in the middle are only done for a small run of time and so what we you know we so the terminology is that first frame that we send in its entirety is an iframe any of the frames that are built off of that through some sort of differencing are called p frames and the chunk of iframe and all of its dependent frames are what's called a gop a group of pictures gop and uh, let me just throw in that um, in Apple parlance, you sometimes see an iframe called a keyframe. Um, similar idea, same idea generally. Yeah. Um, and so and a GOP so is a self-contained chunk of video. So if I have one whole GOP, be it 12 frames or 15 frames or 150 frames, that's all I need and I can play that video. Right. So that gives us, so by splitting these things into small GOPs, it gives us a few things. One, our errors don't accumulate over more than one over the, the frame length of that GOP. That's the main reason why this was started. The other thing that it does is it allows us to shuttle around in the video or to start, you know, say we're doing streaming to, to enter a live stream in the middle. Because if we were to, you know, if someone were to broadcast a live stream that had this GOP encoding, we can't start if all we're getting is a stream of differences and we never got that truth frame you know that iframe to start with there's no entrance into the you know the sort of canon of the of the you know the the video and so we have to sit there and wait until we get a full iframe and then we can start the decoding process and so this is you know so so gops give us one a granularity to go to, to shuttle around in the video and two a way to quickly jump back and forth so this is you know this is great we get a lot more you know a lot more quality at a much lower data rate but it introduces a number of problems um, one we've kind of already touched on which is you can't decode in a smaller section than a gop so anytime you shuttle to a frame in the middle of a gop you have to back up to the head of it grab that iframe and then parse forward until you hit the frame you want um it's 
in most, you know, naive implementations, even worse if, say, you want to play a file backwards. Um, because then you have to continually jump back to the last iframe, decompress Decode forward. Over. Yeah, decode the whole thing. Right. And then you can play back that one gob. And um, there are some other bad implementations, uh, QuickTime, uh, where if you want to, for example, convert from a long gob format to something else, um, the because maybe your media architecture is 20 years old and isn't well designed for long op formats, um, the transcode will actually request frames individually. So it'll decode a whole gop, give you Throw one frame, convert that frame, and then request the next frame so it decodes the same gop again. Um, and so if you've ever transcoded something from H.264 to something else in like compressor and said, why is this taking a day and forever? Um, you know that's part of the reason um, is because of this the overhead where you can't just get one frame you have to decode a whole bunch of frames right and so this is this is the you know it's this same problem that that gets introduced when you start to try to edit these clips together because what happens is is if you're if you're cutting on a gop on the end of a gop on your outgoing shot and the in the beginning on the iframe of the next gob on your incoming shot, then there's no additional computation to do. But if you try to cut, if your your incoming shot is mid-gob, then you have to actually keep around the entire, all the preceding frames up to that iframe. And you have to actually read all of those off disk. And every time you play back, you have to read all those off disk and decode all of them in the amount of time you, you would usually be doing a single frame read and decompress so when, at that cut point. When HDV first hit the market, some of the early editors um, actually limited you to just cutting on GOP boundaries. Um, so the most precise edit you could have was um, 15 frames or 12 frames, depending on whether you were in uh, HDV1 or HDV2, um, which kind of was, was one of the things that gave... Um, HDV a bad rap early on uh, was people said you know well you just can't be edited or you have to sort of convert everything into some in intermediary format and back then there weren't many good intermediary formats uh, right I mean the problem being an intermediate format is a intraframe format and so in order to retain all the quality you need drastically more space right yeah, orders so, of magnitude more right and so you know, I, we, we've all experienced this when not using a program like ClipRap and trying to bring our ABCHD files into Final Cut Pro, all of a sudden your disk is full. Right. And it's because what used to be, you know, the data rate on ABCHD is at most 20 megabits. megabits. Yeah, 20 megabits a, a second. And. ProRes being or AIC is a uh, couple hundred, right? Um, so Final Cut Five, when it hit, was the first one of the early mainstream editors that let you cut HDV uh, natively. Was uh, it? I thought it was four point five. Was it four? I thought four point five was the one that added DVC Pro HD. 
mm. than five mm. added HDV. Remember, four point five was HD. Yeah, but wasn't that only go. with DVC Pro HD? Yeah, you might be right. And like capture cards. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, in any case, you know, it was one of those those releases. It was five, uh, where um, you could start cutting HDV natively. You brought it in through login capture, um, although the login capture interface didn't look the same as the one for DV. Hmm. Um, and you could then edit, and what was happening was what Mike described, is behind the scenes, every time you made a cut, uh, Final Cut would, when playing back, rebuild that whole GOP, even if it was only playing a few frames out of that GOP. Um, and you saw the impact of this in, in two ways. Um, one, when you went to export that timeline, um, you know, file, export, QuickTime movie, make movie self-contained, uh, that process took a lot longer than it used to. Um, because in, with DV, it's basically just a file copy. You're really just bound by your disk I.O. With HDV, suddenly that was orders of magnitude slower because Apple was having to decode all of your video to YUV and then recompress it with HDV to build a continuous GOP because you can't sort of splice two GOPs together um, in a particularly useful way because, you know, if you trim the first three frames off a movie, uh, suddenly everything after that needs to be re-encoded. Um, right, although that's actually a limitation of HDV, not of sure, sure. long GOP formats. In, right. Um, and the other thing you noticed in conjunction with this is that there was the potential for uh, essentially generation loss, um, even if you were doing things that should have been you know, generation lossless, like straight cuts, uh, straight cuts, re-export, bring them back in, do some more straight cuts, re-export, bring them back in. With DV, that would be a lossless operation. Each one was, right. Um, with HDV, that could potentially be lossy because um, something that was an iframe in one cut might suddenly be a P frame or a B frame that uh, loses a little bit of, of quality, and you do that a few times, um, and you start to actually get uh, a, a quality loss. Right. Now, so is that true? Is that how Final Cut Pro 5 implemented HDV cutting? I thought so. I was under the impression that it spliced in tiny bits of AIC uh, for no. partial gobs. No, that became an option later. Mm. Um, but in Final Cut 5, no, I don't think that was possible. And you can, I think starting in 6, you could tell it to, when working with long gob formats, do... Um, do all your rendering and everything either in AIC or ProRes. Hmm. Um, but I that was, I'm pretty sure that's the way it always worked. No, I so. And it was definitely an option. Hmm. Well, so. If you work for Apple, email us. And uh, apologize. Um, so that was all great for HDV. And uh, we all sort of got used to that. I mean, it was interesting at the time. I think you probably remember it, too. In the indie filmmaker community, there was a lot of distrust of long gop um, for some valid reasons and some just crazy indie people reasons. Um, and I think over time, people started to just become accepting of HDV. Of course, there were still always going to be the crazy people who, you know, shot HDV and then played their tapes back over SDI into black magic cards. Uh, you oh, see, you're you're being mean to the indie people. Well, no, okay, there was a legitimate reason to do that with the no, but you know, I, the people Apple I remember being coders. crazy about that. There were there were a lot of people who distrusted DV. I mean, there were years when you couldn't deliver something to the BBC that had been shot on DV. 
it didn't matter how you finished it. Well, you still can't deliver stuff shot HDV to the BBC, I think. Mm, they've gotten really lax about that stuff. If, you, if you're curious, you should read their white paper sometime. Uh, we'll send a link to it because it's fascinating on like what's acceptable and what their percentage. delivery specs? Yeah. yeah. I, I seem to remember them giving a speech at Simpty a while ago saying that you could do... They basically accepted anything now as long as it looked good. I find it hilarious that the first hit for... Uh, uh, BBC delivery specs is to a blog post I wrote. <laughs> nice. Uh, in any case, um, it also goes to a 404, so awesome. On your blog? No, I mean the link that I linked to on my blog. Oh, yeah. I can't be blamed for that. It's the Brit's fault. Uh, much like the death of Amy Winehouse. Um, I got it in there. It was... I didn't oh. think it was going to happen, and then I did. I'm king of the world. So senseless. Um, so anyways, the industry sort of got over their issues with HDV. It became mostly a non-issue. It was still sort of like less fun to work with than DV because, you know, the tapes were less responsive because of this issue of decoding long gops, and, you know, things were just a little bit flakier, and, and things like a tape dropout now meant that you lost an entire gop in most cases. So a Well, it also meant that Final Cut, you know, pooped the bed and wouldn't capture your tape. Right, unless you had something like scope box. Yeah. Uh, um, but no, like, in you know, with DV, a, a bad... Uh, a bad chunk of tape might mean that a frame is a little bit corrupted or maybe you lose a frame or a, a, a stripe group or something. But mm -hmm. uh, with HDV, it means you lose 15 seconds or 15 frames of video, so half a second of video, um, which is substantial. Um, and it, so there were a lot of, you know, sort of minor inconveniences with HDV. I think most people said, yeah, but, you know, I'm getting HD on a $3 tape, so right. I'll take that trade off. Um, but... Then we got AVC HD and uh, AVC HD. Right, which came with the switch to solid state. Right. Because for a long time, I mean, tape was a commodity. It didn't really matter. There was no point really to ever best the data rates of DV because your tape ran at a constant rate. A 60-minute tape was a 60-minute tape, no matter where you used it. If, you know, if they figured out a way to fit more data in a smaller space, all they could do is make the frame sizes larger. The industry had standardized on 720p and 1080. Um, and so a more efficient codec didn't really mean anything. Um, maybe a little more redundancy. Um, to tape hits, but there wasn't really a big incentive for doing it. But when we switched to solid state, all of a sudden we were in the same boat as, you know, digital satellite TV has been, where the the more data you can fit in any space, the more the more money you can make. You know, the more the longer your runtime can be on a card or the longer you know, the more channels of audio you can fit in there or, um, you know, you can start doing things like playing with the quality to file size ratios much more fluidly. And so they, they you know, had an incentive to innovate again with codecs. 
and you know time marches on and you know they were able to also um you know pack better quality into less bits and you know up up the visual quality even at the same bit rate as hdv you know abc hd at uh effectively the same bit rate as hdv so you know in abc hd cases it's 24 megabit instead of 25 megabit um but you know something like an an, an x5u uh shoots pretty amazing video into that bit rate um, well not only that they they shoot a larger frame size right yeah, hdv they, never shot full raster or hd right um but abc hd which uses uh h264 internally for video um uh, is is a pretty pretty complicated format um right and so what happened i mean i guess we should go back a little bit and what happened was hdv when it was adopted was not a new codec it was a codec called mpeg2 which was you know sort of shoehorned into a tape format but you know it was the same as hdcam sr and a couple other formats um it was a you know industry-wide standardized delivery codec that they turned into you know they the you know the MPEG two codec is a superset of what HDV became, and so MPEG two says you can have GOP sizes any size you want, and you can have different kinds of audio, and you can do different color spaces and whatnot. HDV took a subset of that and said you know you're going to have 16 frame cops and you're going to have you know yuv 422 color encoding and you're going to do you know pcm audio or sorry um mpeg2 audio and that's that's what's going to be hdv live with it um and so AVCHD was sort of a natural extension to that. They just went to the next MPEG standard, which was MPEG-4, and took a subset of that and said, this is our new codec. And they got all of the advances that the, the delivery market has been innovating on for years. And what came with that was, uh, you know, that it is a more complicated format. Anyone who's played back, you know, H.264 video in general knows how complicated it is. Um, and so when NLE started implementing it, um, and in, in the Final Cut world, this was Final Cut 6, that added support for AVCHD, uh, suddenly you noticed that when you brought these files in, um, it took a lot longer to bring them in, and uh, the files on your disk were really big because what they had to start doing was converting these files to intra-frame formats, um, Apple Intermediate or ProRes, uh, in order to get decent performance while editing them. Um, you know, in in part because of the CPU requirement and in part because um, QuickTime is not well suited to dealing with uh, in, uh, inter-frame compression in general and in particular to inter-frame compression with B-frames. Uh, which we haven't really talked about. Because yeah, you want to explain B-frames? So Mike t- talked earlier about our hypothetical codec with I-frames and P-frames, um, which means you have a keyframe, then you have a bunch of P-frames, and then you have another keyframe and another I-frame. Um, a B-frame takes a P-frame and makes it even more efficient 
by basing it not only on the frame that just happened, but on the frame that's about to happen. Um, and so it sits in between two P frames, um, and it, 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 it's a little hard to explain given our, our hypothetical codec, but essentially uh, it's based on motion that was in the previous frame and motion that will be in, in the following frame. And so you can actually um, pull data from either side of a B frame to reconstruct that B frame. And it can be incredibly efficient. You know, I've seen B frames that are down on the order of a few bytes. Um, and right. what this means, obviously, if you're thinking, well, how can you how can you have a B frame based on a frame that hasn't happened yet? Um, well, it means that one, you need to wait to compress your B frames until you've actually accumulated enough frames to calculate them. Um, and it also means that when you when you store the frames, or at least when you decode them, you need to decode um, the P frames before you can go back and decode the B frames, um, which which often means you also store them on on disk in that in that fashion. So you have like uh, on disk, you might store them I frame, P frame, P frame, B frame, but you might decode them and play them back. They'd actually be I frame, P frame, B frame, P frame, um, right, or some variation there. So and often you know in um, in a, a 15 frame cop, for example, you might have, you know, two, um, maybe, maybe four B frames. Um, but, uh, you get pretty huge savings that way. Right. And the way they're able to do that is they no longer treat video as a stream of data passing by the decoder and the encoder. Now the encoder looks at entire gops of data at a time. So a decoder just basically buffers up those 16 frames, then compresses all of them at the same time into an I, you know, B, P, P, B, B, P, B, B layout, writes that all out to disk, and then starts in the next gob. And, so and on the decoder side, they have to do the same. They load in that entire gob, rebuild all the frames, and then play them out in the right order. And this is something you've probably seen, you know, if you try to do, if you try to compare, the, say, the uh, the video out on your, yeah, I guess not, never mind. In, in any case, it means that, you know, yeah, that an encoder is not operating in a strictly linear fashion. Um, and it means that your computer has to do a lot more work to emit any given frame. Um, and uh, there are a ton of other things in H.264 uh, that make this even more complicated in terms of the ways that, you know, pixels can be moving around, um, the different ways that, you know, data can be segmented and compressed and quantized, and um, then All also right. huge, huge CPU demands for the run length encoding. Um, that well, and the other, the, the other big demand on the computer now is... It used to be that to play a second of video, you had to do a discrete amount of work every frame. So if you had a second of video, every in you know thirty frames a second, every thirtieth of a second, you had to get so much work done, and that was one frame's worth of decoding. Now, with these long cop formats, especially the ones that have this, you know, the IPB frames all together you have to do on the first frame of that gob you have an iframe and so that one's fine you can play that one back immediately but by frame two you need to have the rest of the gob decoded which means 
all of you know so for a second of video or half a second of video is usually what, about what these gops fall into you have to do all of the disk io for that half a second within those first two frames you have to do all of the decoding you have to do all of the um you know a large amount of the the processing and really the only thing you can do over the rest of that second is start working on the next gop or you know things like color changes and uploading to the the GPU and getting ready to play back and doing audio but most of your your video stuff ends up being really chunky at this point right. where most of the work has to be done in a very short amount of time so rather than needing you know 20% of your CPU all the time you need 100% and then 10% and then 100% and then 10% you know and and god help you if you know at that time you need 100% mail.app also wants to pull in your new mail right it just means your high water mark is much higher and your low water mark is much lower but computers are spec'd out based on the high water mark so either your machine is fast enough for those first two frames of work or you can't play back that video format right and so apple made the decision with final cut 6 and 7 that computers were slow um Remember, we were still on, on PowerPC uh, in part, at least for Final Cut 6. I think, well, entirely when Final Cut 6 came out. Um, and that QuickTime was ancient. Um, you know, B-frame support was hacked in. Um, but uh, with Final Cut, or with QuickTime 6, I think, uh, they got out-of-order frames. But um, it was always a, a hack. Um, and so they made the decision that everything was going to be transcoded. And that was true uh, with iMovie, and that was true with Final Cut. Um up until Final Cut X, which right. now has given you the option that you can work natively with long op formats um, like AVCHD, or you can transcode. Right. And so that brings us to best practices. What do you think? What should someone be doing these days? Hmm. I have my thoughts. I'm curious to hear yours. First. I think everyone should have a license for clip wrap. And they should uh, transcode <laughs> to Apple Intermediate because you don't want to trust that that decode cycle. No, I think you know, I think it's fantastic for you know amateurs um, and indie types to be able to cut something like AVCHD without transcoding, um, especially if you're cutting on an 11-inch MacBook Air with the 64 gig SSD. Transcoding to Apple Intermediary is um, just it's not really an option because the data rates are so high that you're not going to fit enough video on a disc and you're going to be back to the battle days of hauling around firewire discs. Um, right. I think as you get towards sort of more advanced indies and into production houses, uh, I think that converting to something like Apple Intermediate or, or ProRes over the long run probably makes sense because disc is cheap um, and managing disc is a pretty well understood sort of thing. Um, and it's going to give you more flexibility and sort of, I think, at least my sense is sort of lower support overheads um, because right. even a very good uh, long op sort of NLE, um, I think, is going to be less responsive and, and sort of just less, less I don't want to say stable, um, but less consistent than something based on an, an, you know, an editing-oriented uh, intraframe codec. Hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, there's, there, there isn't really a good answer, um, not a definitive answer, because it really is a matter of priorities. 
because you're, you know, you're pulling on a couple levers here. One is disk size. One is, you know, so, so really what it comes down to is if you can amortize the cost of that conversion, that upfront conversion over the savings in the rest of your workflow. So if you're doing a quick turnaround project that's mostly cuts only, where you, so if, you're, if you've got video and it's gonna take you 20 hours to transcode and it's gonna take you two hours to cut, then no, you should stay in, stay in long gap um, because you know, there's no re you're never going to reap the benefits of that little bit faster render time, the little bit you know, less headaches on the edit. Um, if, how, you know, if, however, you're building a B-roll collection for a 22-part series, you know, and that media is constantly going to be shuttled through and cut up and cut into a bunch of things and you're going to reuse it over time, then yes, you know, it makes sense to take that upfront time and amortize it over the course of, you know, six months of production. And I, I will say one thing that would make this decision a little bit easier for um, larger shops would be if um, Apple would get with the times and release the specs for ProRes as an open, an open standard. Um, because when you think about building a big repository of video, um, it's pretty scary to be building that in a format that's controlled by a single vendor. Um, right. I mean, right now our options for intra-frame codecs at least on the production side, are AIC, which is Apple proprietary, ProRes, which is Apple mostly proprietary. They've released it to a few people, so at least there's an ecosystem around it. But it's only trusted sources that are supporting it right now. Um, there's DNxHD, which is a open format, but sort of a you know bastard child in the QuickTime ecosystem. Um, it really was sort of, they made a lot of really bad decisions on how they implemented it within QuickTime. And, you know, you'll see that when you try to choose a specific color space or transfer stuff between color spaces. It really is sort of non-deterministic about what colors you're <laughs> going to get at the other end, at least in, in, at least in a lot of workflows. I mean, in a, in a standard QuickTime workflow, there's really nowhere... It doesn't play by the the rules of, you know, QuickTime's way of setting color space, and so as long as you're in an entirely DNX HD kosher workflow, you're fine. But there are very few of those outside of Avid. Um, and then what else is there? There's, you know, DPX files and a couple other horrible, horrible things. Right. Um, um, and there are a few. I mean, there are still people doing animation for some unknown reason, just right. because it's an open format, at least. Yeah, and there are a few. Yeah, you know, research codecs and experimental codecs, um, but uh, nothing really in, in major use. At least, you know, I'm sure there are some that we're not thinking of at the very, very high end of the of the market. But uh, I mean, there's Bit Jazz, but that's a proprietary codec, and it's you know, one guy's project. Right. And there's uncompressed, of course. Right. Um, but yeah, not a ton of options and um, only, you know, a handful that 
you know, if Apple goes away tomorrow or Apple decides they're getting out of the video industry, um, you know, that you're going to want to have a big repository of content encoded. Um, or even something as simple as Apple decides they don't want it to play back on Windows anymore. Right. I mean, that's the big problem. Right. So there's, there's, yeah, a lot of, a lot of trade-offs here. Um, whereas if you, if you stick AVC HD, um, you're at least a little bit, a little bit safer. Um, of course, you know, the downside potentially is that you're in a, in a world of patents and, and other issues that could potentially explode. But, you know, fundamentally, AVCHD is, is open in the sense that there are open source encoders and open standards about how to implement it. So if there was a nuclear war tomorrow and you ended up with an AVCHD file and, a, you know, copy of you the Internet, still, you could... You could still dump it to disk and play it back in a Blu-ray player. Right. <laughs> Which is, you know... It, which is good. Yeah. So that's where we're at with, uh, with video these days. I think that people have, you know, we, we've had this wave that we've ridden with these formats. Um, and what happens with these types of waves, and we've, we've seen it in so many different ways in the video industry, in computing in general, is that it's very generational. Is that, you know, the generation of editors that um, sort of came into video editing pre-Longop may never fully trust Longop. The generation that came in during the, the height of, a, of HDV may never even think about the differences. Um, and the, these decisions and these prejudices or preconceptions then propagate out. Um, and right. so, you know, it can be tough to have a clean sense of what the real standard or what the real best practices are and what are the sort of voodoo that people have held on to, you know? Right. Um, well, because those best practices are going to change. I mean, in the same way that we couldn't do HDV in the beginning and you could, you know, you needed certain drives to handle it and you needed, I mean, no one would ever think about not cutting HDV native now. Right. Exactly. Because machines have caught up and that's sort of what, you know, everyone's betting on is sooner or later, machines will catch up and AVCHD will be just as mindless of a choice. Like it will be, there will be no trade-offs at all. Right. And I think we're what, a year from that. I mean, I think current yeah, I mean, machines, we're, we're essentially there. I think with shipping machines X, now are with a good GPU, um, you're in, you're in good shape. But of course at this point, you know, who, who cuts AVCHD anymore? Uh, you should be cutting raw. Everything should be raw. Uh, and we're not doing that in real time yet. So get back to work, Apple. Yeah, well, we can talk about raw next week. Yeah, okay, that sounds interesting. Or something. Raw and um, actually, yeah, there are some interest. There's been some interesting articles on sensor design and uh, HDR on sensors and uh, some other things that, that relate to that. So maybe that can be our topic: is some of the uh, the, the guts of your camera and how everyone's cheating you. Sounds good. All right. So does that wrap it up for this week? Uh, I think so. Uh, everyone can let us know what they think or don't think, and uh, I'll get some business cards. Yeah, we'll get you some business cards. I got a lot of T-shirts already. As long as as long as you're going to go to networking events and network. Oh no! What's yeah. the, what's that's the, what business cards are for? What's the dress code for Divergent Media? Um, Do I have to wear a suit? Yes. Oh, I'm going to have to get a suit. Button-up shirts and ties. I, quit. 
I, I, don't, have ties. To, I don't have to wear pants though, right? No, just yeah, suit. Because it's just webcam only. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, we, we follow the uh, broadcast journalism, the <laughs> style of dress. Yeah. If Xcode can't see my uh, my junk, it doesn't exist. Exactly. Uh, bye. And with that, I think we can uh, yeah stop. I think for the Newton week. has decided that we stopped. Okay. <laughs>